Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. We have more information on the new kernel debug work that's being done by Andrea Leopardi. He shared some more details and gave an update. He explained more about it in a Twitter thread, which we have linked in the show notes you can check out. But he says that it's inspired by Rust, but it has some superpowers too, mainly attributed to Elixir's ability to have macros. The first superpower is that because it's using macros, it understands Elixir code. And they use this with the pipe operator to get insight into pipelines and to show you the value at every step of the way. So he includes some screenshots, but imagine a pipeline of functions. When it's debugged, it prints out the function code in the console along with afterward the result of that step rendered out into the console as well. So it's a much nicer way of debugging a pipeline than you know sprinkling it with IO inspect at each line and then adding a label so you know where you are in the process. So it's very neat. I'm really excited to be able to play with this. And the second superpower is that the debug, this is DBG, has pluggable backends. And they're already using this with IEX, which calls pry to set up the breakpoints whenever DBG calls appear. So this idea of pluggable backends is very interesting. I'd like to see what's possible with that. And maybe there is a potential for some type of IDE integration, which previously I'd assumed maybe couldn't happen. Well, I wonder what what you would do in like a production environment where, you know, you you may not want IEX there. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's a good point. Because in the ASCII cinema little thing that he links where he's showing off some of these features, he shows that if you just execute the code, this was in an Elixir script, just in a script. And when you execute it, it does nothing because it's IEX and it's like a debug only thing. But if you do it in IEX, then it catches the breakpoint. So if you did leave one around accidentally and checked it in, it thankfully wouldn't just pause your production app. <laughs> yeah, first of all, whoops. Uh, second of all, <laughs> we got your back. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I need new credo warnings like, oh, you left a debug in there. <laughs> and the other thing, he gave an update. He's adding debug zero, debug slash zero, which prints the current bindings. So this is super handy because it's a quicker way of jumping into some code to debug it. You can just splat this into a function that you want to get a breakpoint into, and it'll just do it right there. Like with the debug slash two, you're passing it the function call to execute and to kind of deconstruct with macros. And when you do it, just sticking debug zero into it, into the function, it seems like a super clean way to just get inside. So what's going on right here? Yeah, this is going to be like habit changing kind of stuff here. Like I'm in the habit of IO inspecting stuff. And now I'm going to have to get into a different habit of DBGing everywhere. It doesn't even roll off the tongue. (laughs) Debugging, DBGing, just DBing. I don't know. I don't know. We'll figure it out. (laughs) (laughs) But I agree. This is this is potentially a big developer experience change that we might want to reevaluate our workflows and see how this can help us. All right. Also up, Obin 2.13.0 and Obin Pro 0.12 was released. We got some links to the change logs here. You know, there's the open source version and the pro version. A couple things that caught my eye here in the OSS version. Now you could cancel the job directly from the job execution. So that seems handy. You might, I don't know, pull a record from the database, realize that they hit cancel or something like that. And then you just want to 
be done with the job, you know? So cancel it. Done. With Pro 0.12, as Parker says, it's finally, so apparently somebody's been waiting on this for a while, maybe just him, (laughs) it's finally possible to use insert all for unique jobs. That sounds nifty. Anyway, so if you're using Open, this looks like a good upgrade. There's a lot of other work that's going on in this changelog, but those are the two things that caught my eye specifically. So go check out the changelogs. It looks like there's a lot of work around the engine interface. This is probably setting up a good framework for more improvements in the future. So it's uh, pretty cool. And next up, the Kino library, which is the library used by Livebook to render rich and interactive outputs directly from your Elixir code. It got a new module added, so it's Kino.process. And that was added to 0.6.2. So Kino process module helps generate visualizations to help introspect your running processes. We've talked about this before. This was created by Alex Kutmos. And currently the module includes two functions. So there's sup underscore tree for supervision tree. And that generates a visual representation of your supervision tree. And we've talked about that one before. And that's really cool. I just think it's a, a great education tool. And like, if you're wanting to document your project and you're saying, Hey, here's some critical piece of the application. And so then you can have some markdown after it describing what the relationship is, why it is this way. I think it's very neat. The new one is app underscore tree. So this generates a visualization of an application tree. So this sounds more like what you might see in Observer, where it's all of the processes, all the PIDs, and the relationships to each other, where it's showing that this one is linked and this one is supervised. So it includes the supervision tree. But it sounds like it's it's more than that as well. So I just think it's really exciting to see this stuff and that it's already you know coming into Kino, something that we can start using in Livebook apps and just exploring the environment. Plug gained a new little feature lately. When an exception occurs in your app, right? You might be familiar with this debugger screen that pops up, right? You get your stack trace, you get some variables. If it was a bad match, you'll get, you know, the the function signatures that it tried, but it's all in HTML. So I was on the Twitter sphere as I usually do. I roam around Twitter and and I came across a tweet from the bun JS creator and he was showing off his bun is a new JavaScript runtime, by the way. So there's a, there's another one out there now. <laughs> this one seems cool, fast, does all the things that you want it to do. Anyway, so the debugger screen for bun had this nifty button that uh, the creator was uh, talking about. And the button was to copy the exception and all the, all, all the context for it to Markdown. So he was just showing off, you know, hitting the button and then pasting it in the Slack, basically. And it'd be nice and formatted there. I thought that was pretty cool. And Plug didn't have that. Well, now now it kind of does. So, And by kind of, I mean kind of because it's there in master, but it's not yet in a tagged release. So soon, maybe, we'll get to appreciate the copy to Markdown button where it will uh, copy the stack trace and uh, all, all of the context that goes along with that into Markdown. So now we can copy and paste pretty well into Slack and GitHub issues, for example, any, any anywhere that supports Markdown. That's pretty cool. Yeah, GitHub issues is a good place where I can see that being helpful. Yeah. And I I see that you're the one who created this PR. So awesome. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) So just a little inspiration from Bun. Looking forward to using that. It'll it'll be something that'll show up when when I don't want to have an error, right? But then I'll see, (laughs) oh, there's an extra little thing here. Cool. Yeah, I my contribution was adding a button. The markdown stuff was already there. Next up, it looks like we'll be getting a new tool for automatically detecting cyclic dependencies between modules in Elixir. 
So we have a link to the tweet where this is being shown off because there is an image that goes with it. So I'll, I'll try and describe the image, but it creates a matrix of modules where each module runs across the top and down the side. Then it puts dots in the matrix where the dependencies are found. Then it draws boxes or squares around these clusters of dots that form cycles. And then answering the question of, wow, that sounds helpful. How can I get this and try it out? And the answer is it's currently unpublished work. It's part of a larger set of tools that they are planning to release to the public sometime soon. So we will keep an eye out for that and let you know when something becomes available because it does sound interesting and it could be another visual way of seeing what's going on there. Also in the news, EctoSQL gained a new configuration option for Postgres users. It's got a link to the PR that has a lot more detail on it, but here's the short version because we're talking about databases. There's The default is the long version when it comes to databases, so I'll try to get the short version for you. Is that previously, Ecto would lock migrations to a node by locking the schema version table by way of a database transaction. All right, that database transaction there is the key. There's some things you can't do inside of a database transaction, such as adding an index concurrently. It just doesn't work. So what we've had to do to now is you have to turn off all of your all of your locks. You can't you, you turn off your DDL transaction lock uh, and your migration lock. So there's no locks, right? There's there's no database transactions happening for that concurrent index creation, which has a downside. The downside is, is that if you have multiple nodes coming up, like in a Kubernetes environment, you got multiple nodes coming up and they're all trying to run migrations, you're going to have competing migrations like running the same thing. And, and they're going to, some of them are going to get errors. So that's the problem. Well, here's the solution now. Now there is a new option. And this is for Postgres users only at the moment. There's a new option, configuration options called migration lock, PG advisory lock. If you add this option, that will take migration locks differently. That still allows for concurrent database operations. So in other words, you can now like keep your migration locks and do concurrent um, operations like, you know, like adding database indexes. So that's, that's pretty cool. Something we didn't have before. Uh, the downside is that it's not compatible with all Postgres compatible databases like CockroachDB, for example. And if you have like proxies in front of Postgres, like a PG Bouncer, there's some configuration weirdness that can happen there that 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 doesn't work too well with session level features like advisory locks which is what this is using if you're upgrading sql this sounds scary to you don't worry about it it's an opt-in option so if you upgrade ecto i mean she should still be fine but um, if this sounds like an option that you would appreciate check out maybe the next tagged version it's not in ecto sql uh, tagged yet it's still it's just just in the in the main branch stay tuned we'll let you know when it's actually released And last up, Makeup has a new demo page showing off how it highlights code. So Makeup is a syntax highlighter written in Elixir and is used by XDoc for generated documentation. So if you're writing your docs and you want to show here's some HTML or Heeks or JSON, you're able to do that. And when you generate the docs, it looks all nice and pretty. Makeup supports languages like Elixir, Erlang, HTML, C, JSON, Heeks, and Diff. What's new is that there is a new makeup demo page where you can see it and see some of the different options and themes, and you're able to discover more about it and see what it's capable of as its own standalone project. So that's just really cool. Just wanted to pass that on. And that's it for the news. Fly.io supports this podcast by providing editing services. Beyond being great for supporting us, they are a great place to host your next Elixir app. 
Check them out at fly.io. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about this idea that we've seen floating around the internet. It's come around in multiple waves, but it came around again, which is this idea of the end of local host development. Dun, dun, dun. And what does that mean? And oh, no, maybe AI is going to be writing all the code in the future. So I don't know. We just want to talk a little bit about what we think this means and how this would impact our decisions. And uh, what do you guys think about this? When I hear the end of localhost, it sounds like what you're saying is I can just use a Chromebook and develop in a web browser. Is that what you're is that what you're saying? Basically, yeah. <laughs> Basically, yeah. It's it's that I'm not going to be installing development tooling on my desktop or laptop that instead I'll be using a uh, a web hosted computer to do all of that. Microsoft would love for that to be the case because with their Azure hosting cloud thing, they can spin up a, a machine. As an IT department, I could set up a, a an image of this is what developers' machines should look like and then just deploy that as like a VM that gets spun up for every new developer who joins the project. So it's like zero to code deploy, you know, ability in, you know, minutes. So I, I think that's that's the idea. It's not just like your local tools, though. It's also the infrastructure that your app requires to run as well. So like a Postgres database, a Kafka thing, a Redis, whatever, all that other stuff. You're not going to run Postgres on my Chromebook. Come on. I need all of it to be in the cloud. (laughs) So a a while ago, there was a, I mean, it still exists. There's some NVIDIA thing where you can like stream games from their beefy computers onto your machine and like even with really great internet, it kind of sucks. <laughs> like I tried it and I wanted it to be awesome. And I, I wanted it like I like to play games every once in a while, but not enough that I'm going to go buy a really beefy gaming computer just to play like some cool game that came out. Right. So I just I just don't play the cool games. I just play the old games that work on all platforms that aren't cool. The old Mech Warrior on the three and a half floppy is still sticking in. <laughs> <laughs> I might pay five bucks or something to like rent someone else's hardware if it if it was good, but it totally sucks. And I kind of feel the same way about this. Like I, I feel like it's well-intentioned and it could be good maybe someday when we all have like 10 gigabit fiber or something. I don't know. It, it just seems like a lot of hard things could come of it too. Like, well, what happens when I need to swap between different Postgres versions? Do I need to work with IT or do I have the ability to change things? Or are they going to get <laughs> mad when I change out of the normal image, right? I don't know. It, just, it sounds like it, it, it's well-intentioned, but it, it's going to be rough. Like, what if I need Vim and they have the wrong version of Vim? The new the new version of Vim came out and I want to use it. It's like, oh. You don't need Vim. You don't need Vim. They'll, they'll install VS Code for you or you just connect to that remote server, but it only works in VS Code. Like, yeah, no, it, it, it is. It, it kind of envelops a lot of a lot of stuff around that. So here's a quote from and the argument right from a couple of folks on, on, on the article. So there is an article that this spawns from. And this isn't a bash session. We're just trying to reflect on what this means. And, and maybe this is some gut reactions, too. But there's a very real possibility that local dev may be dead in 10 years. So, OK, do you think it'll be within 10 years or maybe after 10 years? I don't know. When do we get 10 gig? Internet again? I don't know. <laughs> In the U.S.? Probably never. All right. Uh, but So there's a couple of companies. PlanetScale doesn't believe in localhost. PlanetScale is like a, a online distributed database kind of as a service thing. StackBlitz, never heard of them, runs Node fast in the in the browser. Well, all right. Congrats. But GitHub runs entirely on code spaces. Have you, heard, have you ever used code spaces before? 
So when it was in beta, you could use it for free and I actually tried it out and it's just VS code in the browser. Yeah. But it's the same thing. Like I tried to run and it was like, uh, we don't actually know how to do Elixir because Elixir is not like the, the top language used in GitHub. So you got to figure it out yourself. And I was too lazy to figure it out. <laughs> I could see, like, I sometimes use the GitHub online editor if I missed something in some PR somewhere that I'm like, I'm, I'm locally deep in some other thing that I don't want to stash and check out back to this other branch. So I'm just going to fix that typo really quick, but sure. But that, that's not really the end of local host. That's just like a, the, that's the end of where my end of local host. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're, you're willing to use a different editor. Got it. <laughs> no, it's a, it's an interesting concept because it seems like most developers I work with are like really particular about how they set things up. And that class of developers, I think would have a hard time transitioning into this it's just it's less customizable right it's like it's like the iphone android conversation it's like android users love android because it's so customizable and hate iphone because like you can't customize all the things that you can customize on android and i think there there will probably be a similar reaction moving to these web interfaces like well i can't tweak my bash profile or my vim config or all of these like things that i've just I've just learned to do it this way and I like it this way, but I could see a class of like newer developers that are like, I don't want to deal with setting things up. I'd love to just click a button and say, I use Postgres, I use Node, I'm fine with VS Code, go. And it's all set up and ready to go, right? I think it's interesting just to come back to why people might want to push for this, which I've been in this situation where someone new joins the team and you have a sprawling set of services or a large mature code base. And, you know, once you got your development environment set up and going, you just forgot about it. And now someone else has joined the team and it might take days to get them fully up so they can work with all of what's available and, and used by the team. And I think that's what people are trying to push back against saying, you know, there's a problem if we can't bring people up and and have them jump in and start contributing. When you guys are developing on different projects, do you ever run into like a like a script, like a bin setup or a nowadays we have mix setup coming straight out of the mix generators for for elixir things, but do you ever come across that like are there setup scripts to like bootstrap a, a project for you? I haven't no. Not very often. Those are hard to maintain. It's not very often that you run those and make sure that they're working. Yeah, that seems to be the the core of the issue, you know, here is that basically they they want to take that. I, I've written one. I, I've I try to put that in all my projects. There's at least a mix setup or there's a, a, a bash script bin setup, implying that there's a bash script means that Windows users are out of luck. But <laughs> so not I guess it doesn't solve all the problem. But the, the thing that that setup script lacks is all the other infrastructure. So like the, the most that I would do in my bin setup scripts is like, check, uh, do you have Redis installed? Do you have the right version of Postgres installed or the right version of the language, you know, installed, stuff like that, but not much past that. It won't install it for you. It won't start them for you. And it can get even more complicated when there's like certain settings in Postgres that you need on or off or adjusted or something like that. So like, it's not going to do that for you. And, you know, and then at, by the time you're at the end of that, that story, let's say you made a really good comprehensive bin setup script, 
it's all just a bash scripts. It's like not very, and then you get a different job and you're like, man, I got to rewrite this stuff. And like, now I got to convince all my other friends and developers that we need, we need something like this. And so I think it's out of that like frustration of, of just getting the project up and running, which I've been through a lot like that sucks a lot. It's like, it could be very bad. I get the pain. The thing that bothers me is that it, we're, we're trading for so much complexity to get there. And and usually the trade is containers, Kubernetes, probably, and then a, a, a security access controlled way of accessing the code. And so that implies usually an online hosted, uh, S, you know, uh, VPN, you know, surrounded code editor. And, and today that's going to be something like Visual Studio Code that's hosted up there, like Code Spaces, right? Now it's everything, you know. It's your at now. It's dictating your editor for the most part. It's probably it's dictating the when and where you can you can develop. So if you're out of internet access, your hotspot goes dead or something like that. You're out of luck. Probably can't access it anymore. Offline access is probably not there anyway. And all those other things, the the concept of a personalized development environment is is being traded for this idea that it's easier to to set up the application for development. I think this is most likely to be adopted by the big enterprise companies, right? Like the Microsofts and Facebook and, and things like that, where it's like, this is what we want and a whole army of developers to be set up like. We don't want you to have anything custom or, or unique. I think that's where you're most likely to see it. Yeah, I agree. Is that right for them? I should probably read the article. And so I'm bad that I haven't read it fully yet. But if if the main argument that's being made is that it's hard to get set up, it's like why it's like what you were saying, David. It's like why why do you want to trade like one or two days of getting set up for like years of depending on how long? Maybe like the average is like a year in the technology space nowadays, but like you're gonna trade like two days of setup for like a year of like now you're stuck here. I don't I don't ever I have never felt like getting set up is the worst part of starting a job. It's like sometimes it's been hard, some but like learning the code base and like learning the domain is like way more heavy than getting my development set up locally. I think where it really becomes painful is when you have these, and I think this is most often in those large enterprise companies, is where you have a lot of infrastructure like Dave is talking about, where I've got Kafka and I've got Spark clusters and I've got a whole bunch of microservices that are all connected. I've got multiple types of databases, like getting all of that up and running is incredibly complex. And you'd probably just, you, you get started by not doing that. It's like, that's why they start doing microservices because like, oh, you can just compile just this one microservice in Go. That's part of the problem. Here's what I want, the idea I want to present to you guys. I think if the problem is the complexity of our development and deployment and production environments is so high that we have to add another layer of abstraction on top of it, to try and deal with that. And that's like where we're abstracting the way we set it up and into like predefined images and things. What I think is a good question to ask is maybe we have a setup that is too complex and we need to scale back and change the way we're designing the system to be less complex, that it doesn't require all of that. Yeah, that's that's like the root of it, right? It's like if, if it's so complex that you need to wrap it around something like, are we solving the wrong problem here? What I'm getting at is I think Elixir is really well positioned to solve a lot of that complexity. 
Oh, dang it, Mark. This is just all positioned to talk about Elixir. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, are you shilling? <laughs> I work at Fly and we interact with a lot of other development communities. And when you look at what it takes to get a traditional, like, I'm ready to go with a, a setup production environment, it's a lot of stuff, a lot more than we require. And that's because like you have Redis, but you know, we can handle caching inside the beam. And then you need something else to handle any kind of pub sub or connection to another server. Well, the beam can do that. And, you know, we still need a database. That's the commonality there. But I think because Elixir supports so much and just the, the history of where the beam came from and what it was trying to accomplish, it's capable of doing so much built in that we can have much simpler systems. And simpler systems, I think I couple that with the idea that I can that, that it's so simple that one person can wrap their head around it, right? And start it up maybe with less dependencies. Dependencies. Let me talk, let me, let me focus, hone in on that word there. Maybe the, the biggest thing about this end of local host discussion that it just irks me is it's about getting away from dependency hell. Dependency hell being like all the other things you need to get, you know, up and running for the app to to, to respond, whatever, right? So the, all those other dependencies, the Redis's, the, the Postgres's, whatever, the Kafka's, the Rabbit's, all that stuff. But we're trading, you know, that dependency hell for another required dependency of Kubernetes, of containers, of these these other communities that are largely heralded by these large enterprises because these are the tools they need because they're so large. So let's let, let me just reframe it. If I'm a small business person of, of with an employee of one, me, and the only sensible way for me to start my business is to use enterprise tools and to try to contain all that same knowledge that is handled by enterprise folks with a team of hundreds and thousands of whatever of developers, like it becomes a huge dependency for, for me to start my business, you know, to, to rely on something like Kubernetes and, and to understand that and do it well and all that kind of stuff. Right. I just don't, I don't want that. You know, like it's, those are huge businesses that, that are, you know, have to answer for their profits to their shareholders and stuff. They like, they have, they have no real guideposts and, you know, goodwill towards the, you know, the common person to, to just, be simpler for the common person, I guess. It is in their interest to make it more complicated, you know? And I guess that's that's probably the big thing to me is that it's it's just, it prevents solo developers and small businesses, maybe even medium businesses from doing it well on their own as, as well as, you know, just to get started. Like they're picking the tool way too early. I agree. And there's a, two examples I wanted to call out. So one, we had a recent interview where we talked about plausible IO and plausible analytics and what they were doing. And they did it, they were doing it with a single Phoenix app as a monolith, Ukutat. And he was getting to the point of scale where he was saying, you know, it might make sense to split out this one thing into two pieces because they are so separate and we don't want a down outage in one area to cause an outage in collecting our analytics data. But that was all with one code base, one service with one specialized database. And then there's another one with uh, Stack Overflow had one of their engineers go on a, another podcast called Hansel Minutes. I'll have a link to this in the show notes. But Stack Overflow, they, they talked about what their infrastructure is. They run nine on-premises servers to host all of their sites because they have, it's not just Stack Overflow, they have Stack Exchange and all these different community sites. So it runs 
nine servers to run all their sites. And they found that giving their SQL database 1.5 terabytes of RAM was more effective than caching page fragments with Redis. And it's a monolith. So you think, what does it take to run that locally on a developer's machine? It's like you've got one application with one database. That's it. You're up and running. And I think of working on Elixir applications where some of the biggest complexity was getting the the NPM packages all working, right? Just getting, because there was native compilation needed for the platform and, and having issues with that. And when you start doing, going to ES build and doing less with JavaScript, like just doing more live view, it's like just keeps simplifying things. I, and I want to be careful not to just feel nostalgic for the old times when you can just pop an old busted up server, you know, underneath someone's desk and let that run the website for a couple of years, you know, like that's got its own set of dangers too. <laughs> it's not, that's not perfect, but oh my gosh, that's so simple. You know, that's, that's so simple. You know, just take backups of it and, and put a UPS on it or something, you know, like it'll, <laughs> it can get you so far. And well, let me go back to Stack Overflow. Stack Overflow probably launched before Kubernetes was even a twinkle in somebody's eye, right? So like maybe after all the contributions to Stack Overflow, they could have rebuilt Kubernetes and copy pasted Kubernetes into their, into their own infrastructure. But maybe that would be their choice today because of the size they are. But maybe when they're starting out, if it were, if Kubernetes were available, would it be the right choice for them? I don't, I don't know. I'm rambling a little bit, but I want to like just boil it back down to like what, what you said is it's like racing towards complexity too quickly. And that simplification is is really the thing here that, that we're looking for. But why? Why simplification? It's not just so I can just understand it all on my own for my own egotism, you know, so, so that I can feel good about me, super developer, that I can understand everything about what the app is doing. I think there's something else to it here. You sent me a video by a developer named Jonathan Blow, um, who's a game developer from a while ago. I actually played a, one of his games called Braid. I think that's how you say it. And it's, and it's pretty cool. But he he has a talk here about, it's it's a little bit exaggerated. So it's called Preventing the Collapse of Civilization. You remember it. Why don't you tell me, what, what's this video basically saying? What What is the point of this of his talk? The point that I got from it is that he gives a lot of fun examples of history, modern and going back thousands of years, giving evidence to say that it is the natural trend of things to say that we lose knowledge and technology degrades. Giving examples from the earlier days of Texas Instruments and silicon being created, going back to ancient Greece and or Rome and, and just the loss of aqueduct technology. And, you know, it's the, that if we are not actively pushing for technology to improve in an area, then it's going to degrade. And he gives our the U.S. and modern space flight as an example, how we made this great grand push to get someone out onto the moon. And then slowly we just kind of kept scaling it back, scaling it back until we're not as a nation putting anybody anywhere else in the in the galaxy, you know, or in, in the solar system. We've we've stopped technology degrades over time. And that's not something that we really think about. And it, it, it degrades over time. So, so one of the examples he gives in, the, in his talk is, is like there, there is actually a, a mechanical like a thing that I think it was the Byzantine Empire made that's tracking the planets, you know, and it's mechanical. I, I'm guessing this was made for, you know, ship faring or something like that. But 
they don't know how they made it. Like it is an anomaly of that time. And then there was a gap for a while where they didn't make that machine anymore. So it's like dated for this time period that it that it shouldn't really exist for. But then also it didn't really there's nothing after that for hundreds of years that made it better. So the assumption is the conclusion here is that that technology came up to a point and then stopped and then lost it, lost the knowledge. And it actually degraded for hundreds of years after that. I can't help but think that that's going to happen to us. I don't mean to be a fear monger because I hate that stuff, but so I'm going to be U.S. centric here thinking about, uh, oh, I won't be too political, but when you think about the internet, the internet is, is somewhat regulated here in the U.S., but it's not very regulated. And this has actually happened over time. You had huge corporations that would end up controlling uh, telecommunications. The government ended up breaking it up. That was AT&T back in the, back in the day. Now there's a lot of small companies. This was back in like the 80s, I think. And then over time, all these companies bought each other up and now it's Verizon and AT&T again. It's basically back, back up to these big these big corporations. And they, you know, they essentially have like consolidated what, you know, internet is to everybody, you know, the consumers. And there's there's not as much regulation for it. There is, there is no right to the internet. There's no, it, it is a privilege and you have to pay for it. Sure, it's much more complicated than that. But the fact being is that if I lost internet to my house, I would have to move. You know, if I, if, if I lost internet to my house, like on a permanent basis, I would have to move. And not everybody is able to do that. Right. So like that would be the end of my career. <laughs> if I couldn't, if I couldn't have the, the internet, you know, access in my area, for some reason, if my area just didn't have internet, that'd be the end of my career. There's nothing I can do about that. That would be a total collapse for me. And, and, you know, if we think about that um, on a, on a more national scale, like let's say that AWS gets hacked and there's something that catastrophic happens to them and they decide, you know what, it's not profitable, which is totally untrue, to be AWS, we're just not going to do servers anymore. You imagine like what impact that would have on society? Like that would be terrible. Okay, those are easy examples of like huge things that could happen that are unlikely to happen but keyword unlikely, like it could happen. And who knows what happened back in the, the Byzantine time where they made, they had that kind of society that could make that machine and then they lost it for a while. You know, let's not forget that a lot of the innovation that's been happening in computer science was actually done, you know, like along, uh, it, this is another point of his, of Jonathan Blow's talk is a lot of the innovation that was done in technology was done, you know, with, with the folks that started the internet and then most of the technologists that are in the space now are, are folks just trying to make a buck off of it, which isn't a bad thing, right? But it's not they're not they're not folks that are actively pushing, you know, semiconductor, you know, technology even faster, further, and all that kind of stuff. And uh, you know, we're we're basically sitting on our laurels. That that is the that's the cautionary tale of of his uh, of his talk. I can relate to some of that. Okay, all right. So that's a long way. Let's bring, let's bring it back. All of that to say is that. With the complexity of, you know, uh, of online only development and all, all that stuff that comes with that, Kubernetes, microservices, message buses, databases, Redis caches, SIFSMD, all that kind of stuff. I think there is a greater risk for that stuff to end up being forgotten at some point, actively degrading over the next 10 years to, to the point to where it becomes increasingly annoying and people are going to be seeking simplicity for, for development again. One shining ray of hope out of out of this maybe inevitable mass migration to online only development is that it will finally be the year of the Linux desktop. <laughs> <laughs> 
not if Microsoft and Azure has its way. <laughs> but, you know, they still run Linux on Azure too. So it still could be. I do want to come back to this idea of why I think this is worth even talking about on an Elixir podcast. And what's interesting about this idea of localhost development is when I started doing some research on this topic and just learning about it, I, I realized this has been talked about since like 2015 with some of the earliest references to this idea that I've seen. So it's like, it hasn't happened since then. And what's the likelihood that it'll happen in the next five, 10 years? I don't know. There is an interesting pattern that we see in tech. It's like a pendulum swing. It goes from everything happens on the local machine to, you know, like that's, that's how they were sold, IBM machines, to swinging to the other side of networked to like you have Sun workstations where your workstation is a dumb terminal and everything happens on the, the, the main server and it's just the connections to it. Then it started to swing back to a client server. But it's just like this pendulum kind of keeps swinging back from everything happens locally to everything happens remotely. The reason it starts to swing back the other way is because it's like we went too far. Maybe there is a right place somewhere in the middle where you can have benefits of both. The idea I want to come back to is that instead of saying it's too hard to manage, so we're just going to figure it out once and everyone will cookie cutter that thing. And then you knowledge degrades, you lose the ability to even modify that image to understand and have someone new come in and totally rebuild something from the ground up in a different way, because it's just, it's too hard to coming back to saying, well, we're solving the wrong problem. If our systems can only work because they are made out of so many pieces, so many different moving parts that are all connected and all have to be set up just right to work, then it's fragile. And that's a problem. So swinging it back to saying the system doesn't have to be built that way. So there was this a great little tweet I saw. Someone was praising Sasha Yurik's book, Elixir in Action. Because one of the things he talks about in Elixir in Action is saying, how this is early in the book, he's, he's, he compares to say, you know, normally you'd build a system with all these different parts. You need to have the database and the web server and then, you know, the web server separate from like, you know, that might be uh, like Apache. And then you'd have separate the server language and then you'd have the caching layer and you have all these different pieces. And he's drawing the correlation saying you can do all of those with Elixir. So someone was reading this and finding this and then realizing what you can do with things like supervisors he said, it feels like DevOps at the language level. It's like, yes, that's exactly it. I just love the succinctness of that idea. That's DevOps at the language level. So if we are building these Kubernetes systems to keep everything running and to abstract everything so that we can build it the way we have to, to solve our problem, it's like, well, with Elixir, you have other options. And you can really build a lot of those concepts that you're using these whole other systems to try and patch on to a language that doesn't support it. They actually exist in the language. Yeah, I, I love that. DevOps at the language level. Yeah, I love it. And I want to, here's an asterisk. You know, I, I know Mark and I keep on saying Kubernetes here because that's like the easiest example of, of overcomplexing, you know, um, <laughs> people's uh, development environments. But this this also applies to other other spaces as well. You know, you, you can think about like some just JavaScript apps, just how the dependency tree there with NPM, like it just get it's gotten ridiculous in some cases. That's a system that's over over complex as well. 
you know, and, and there are plenty of efforts in the JavaScript realm to like simplify that. And like I've heard of Bun recently that's trying to be this all-inclusive tool that will hopefully simplify JavaScript development. I wish them well in their in their journey. I hope it works. And, and in the Linux world, like system D is one of those things that is like just taking all these parts of the of the Linux operating system and is maybe over complexing things uh, or simplifying. I don't know. Depends on how you look at it, I guess. But they become these things that are, yeah, layers of, of, of abstractions on top of things. And I guess I'm afraid, I'm scared of of the moment we realize that we spent our time learning these essentially DSLs and not learning the real technology under it. So we get distracted by the DSLs that manage those things without really understanding what's going on. And one day... The folks that actually do understand what's going on there are, are not going to be interested in passing that on. <laughs> they won't be around. <laughs> or won't be around, right? And we'll have lost that that knowledge uh, about what was, you know, what they were doing, what there was unimportant things to do. And, it, and it's up to us as a development community to, like, ensure that we continue to get these swings of simplification back. And so, yeah, coming back to what you said, what what, what I think the person's name is Mario. What Mario said is it's Elixir is DevOps at the language level, which is a swing of simplification back, I think. So I, I really, really appreciate that because, yes, that's a early and often gut reaction I have with uh, all the all the DevOps abstractions that we have to fiddle with. Something you said that just reminded me of this idea that knowledge is lost. It degrades. And I have seen that just in my personal project, you know, like it's a, a company project, I'm working with a team and you think, wow, you, this would be so much easier. This, this is so complex here. This would be so much easier if we just rewrote this piece and started over to clean it all up. Maybe it was started by someone else. Maybe it was myself two years ago. But in, in that intermediate time, I have lost knowledge because when I start to rewrite it, I realize oh, there's all these edge cases that I totally forgotten about. It's like, oh yeah, it has to do this because of that. And it's that level of complexity that we lose, we lose sight of. So if if we ever get to the point where, like you're talking about, like uh, the, the people who actually understand some of the deeper concepts, if we lose that, lose access to them, just because, you know, that happens with life, they retire, whatever, then we're continually having to relearn those discoveries and like, oh yeah, there's a problem with magnetic fields and transistors when they get too close together and it causes errors on chips. It's like, oh yeah, we, we have to start over and figure this out all over again. <laughs> I've, I, I totally armchair commentary here. So I have no, no real knowledge here, but I, I, I have a sense that, that might be what's happening in like the, this re revolution with, with uh, like the Apple M1 chip. This reignition of CPU technology because of x86, how it's evolved. It's it's compatible from like the first program. Like you can run programs from like back in the 70s on these x86 chips, right? Because and I'm sure that that is a lot of complexity to keep that compatibility in there. And a response to that was the ARM chip reduced set of instructions in there to take out some of those extra things. And then more recently, I think there's Risk Five, which is the open source version of that. Anyway, so I wonder if that's kind of happening in like the CPU and the hardware realm. Is that like, we're going to shed some of that stuff that we 
may have forgotten about <laughs> and try to reinvent some of that. And there's there are benefits to that, like the performance of these to power ratio, especially pretty good. But uh, in software, that's got to happen a lot. Not software related, but maybe psychology related here. One more example that I can draw from. I, I took a IQ test a long time ago to figure out what was going on in my, in my head. One of the tests that I took was uh, working memory. I have terrible working memory. That's that was the result of it. Like I scored really well on the other tests, so like my IQ is like up there, but I I suck at remembering stuff. So I can't remember things, which is like I, it makes me really frustrated sometimes. As if it's like the tip of my tongue, like I oh I think I know the answer. I have to rely on my gut a lot, but I just don't remember, and so uh, it's very frustrating. So I, I don't, not that anyone can do anything about it, but I don't advise that for you. <laughs> And so as a, as a uh, way to work around that, you have to develop these simple little systems that just work for you. So one, one small example is like, if I, if I remember in the moment, or if I have a task that I need to do, I think this is also like a get things done um, strategy, but if the task takes less than five minutes, you just do it now, just do it now. And so my life is driven by five minute tasks, right? <laughs> I'm constantly going to these other five minute tasks, I'm very distractible and, and it stinks. But one of the other systems that come out of that is if I need to remember, like if I, uh, if I want to take uh, an item and give it to somebody else, I need to go put that item by the door. So that way, when I'm walking out the door, I'll see it and I'll remember and I'll take it, take it all right. Everyone's got a version of this, right? They, they tend to do that, but these, these, it is not a system. I don't check my note list to see the items I need to take to my person. You know, like it is just a simple system. You put it next to the door and that's all it takes for me to. And, and even then, I, I sometimes I forget them. So, like, <laughs> but it's but it's going back down to a simple system of just like what works and putting stuff by the back door, which is towards my car. That works. And I don't need a complex note taking reminder system to tell me, you know, to remind me of those kind of things, because that is a it sounds stupid, but it's it's a more complex system that I don't really need to live life well. Simplifying some of those little things is totally worth it and makes me feel better because I feel like I, I accomplished something that I told myself I was going to uh, you know accomplish earlier in the day or week or something. So a small little psychological example of like how simplifying systems is actually good for you. Yeah. <laughs> like why wouldn't we want that in our in a professional workplace, you know, as well with the with all the complex systems that we have. Simplifying things is is a good thing. You know, I love the error messages that are in in Elixir. They're they're gentle, subtle reminders of like like, did you do a typo here? Did you mean this word? You know, like that kind of stuff. Those are simple, like ways to nudge people into the right direction. And I love those kind of things. And if we had more of that, I think, I think people will be happier with it. Maybe that's why Elixir is one of the top loved languages. It's an interesting idea. Just you, dear listener, I'm not preaching here. This is as much a reminder to myself as to anyone else. But I think what I would have told myself in past jobs that I was at is look for ways to simplify it. So one of the things I remember that we did at, at a company that I was at is there was a number of different languages with different services, and we were able to actually bring them back into an umbrella. Some of that was rewriting some of the services into Elixir, but we brought them back into an umbrella. You could argue, well, there's a loss of some flexibility there perhaps, but what it brought was a massive simplification just because it was all a single code base. So the the code changes that 
impacted this service over here needing to be tied to that service over there and having to release them at in certain order and all that, that was dealt with. And then the ability to start up an entire system, it was just starting up your application because it started up everything and the dependency orders made sure everything started up in the right order. So it's just little things like that. I mean, it's, it's a major, major effort to do that, but it was a major simplification that just took out a lot of other complexity. You still have to make sure you're, you're managing the complexity that, that is inherent in the system. Just because if you're trying to solve a problem like you know building semiconductors, there's just a level of complexity that you have to deal with. You can't simplify everything all away, right? Like there's a, an inherent level of complexity in the systems that we have. So the effort in, in my mind is to not add complexity that isn't necessary to the problem I'm trying to solve. I was an advocate for Kubernetes, right? I, I helped to bring it in to help solve some of these problems that we had. And that adds a whole other layer of complexity. So I'm no longer a fan of Kubernetes, but I, I totally get it. I understand it. I, I can build out a whole system with it. And, and now I would choose to not use it. <laughs> and, and that's not advice, by the way. If you need to use Kubernetes, <laughs> you should use it. <laughs> it's just an easy, easy example to pick on. <laughs> it, it's our, our uh, punching dummy there. But anyway, I guess the, the point is try to limit the amount of complexity that we're adding to our systems that we're not adding complexity that isn't required for the problem we're solving. Because there's, there's a certain level of complexity we have to deal with. And then... If we're able to simplify our development environments, then the need that's pushing people to say we have to get rid of localhost development, that's dealt with largely in my mind. It's like, well, maybe you do with your setup, maybe that really is beneficial for you and maybe that's what you, the, the best choice. But for me and my system and the way I'm going to build things, I don't need that. Similarly, I build web pages with Elixir and Phoenix and before that Ruby and Rails. And I remember coming across somebody that's just like, well, I just deployed my HTML up to S3 and done. And I was like, wait, what? You can do that? Like, you can. <laughs> I, I didn't really need an app server. I was complecting things right there. I didn't need to. I could have just done HTML on an S3 bucket uh, or any any web accessible, you know, uh, place. And that's a that's good. They have simplified their process, right? That's that's a good thing. So, not always saying you know we need Elixir everywhere, but yeah, simplifying is is going to be a good thing because it's an easier problem to deal with later if it comes up or avoids a whole class of problems, which is also good. All right, well, localhost development isn't dead to me, and I don't hope that it goes to kick the bucket, but I do appreciate the tooling that we have we have gained to get here to this discussion. There's a lot of stuff that isn't fun and our punching dummy Kubernetes has taken that, that, you know, that, 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 that stuff away from me that, that I don't have to worry about. So it's definitely a good thing, but I am curious to see what the next five to 10 years, uh, what development's going to look like for us. And I am happy with Elixir and Erlang being our language of choice that brings DevOps a little bit closer to us. I really like that. Well, if you've made it to the end of this show, congratulations, because it's it actually, you know, we thought, oh, this will be a short topic, but somehow <laughs> we just managed to always have so much more to say than we think we do. <laughs> but, you know, we would love to hear from you. What do you do to help simplify your systems or your the, the development for your teams? We'd love to have you reach out and let us know. You can find ways to contact us and the show in the show notes. But unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.